But one of the things that I hate to do, I hate to miss the beginning of a movie. Do you know what I'm saying? If you miss the beginning of the movie, you have missed what the author has been laying. I mean, he's been dropping some things that when when you begin to watch the movie, you're hanging on every detail, and you don't know why yet. But you're just taking it all in, because if you've watched enough movies, what you find out is what the writer of that script is going to do is he's going to drop some things right there at the beginning for you that he's going to work all the way through his story and coming to the end. If you missed it at the beginning, man, you're sunk. Last week we used the, the terrible illustration of The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember that? Well, you remember in that movie, for example, you remember at the beginning when it was black and white, you know, Dorothy is on the farm, you know, and she's just kind of going through all this stuff. And all of the characters that you're about to meet once it comes into Technicolor, all of those characters are people that you met right at the very beginning of that movie. And and so what they're doing is they're setting all of what's getting ready to take place in this movie. They're setting for you. And and you just think it's farmhand passing, you know, Dorothy. But that writer is introducing you to some very key things. Okay? It's the same exact way when God approaches his book. And it's particularly the book of Revelation. If you haven't already turned there, why don't you do so at this time? Now, God is the greatest author who has ever been in existence. I mean, I think that goes without saying. So God knows what he's doing when he goes to approach a a storyline or a a dramatic portrayal. And what we have in the, the book of Revelation is exactly that. And what we find in the first eight verses of this first chapter of the book of Revelation is God is introducing us to this book. He's introducing this book to us. He's beginning to lay down for us vital foundation in those first eight verses that he's going to be building on for the whole rest of this this book. There's There's some key things he's wanting to make sure that you have embedded in your mind before you get into the real content of this book. And when we hit verse 7 last week, Wow, we hit a biggie. I mean, God was was just dropping a major one on us here. I mean, right at the outset of this book, what he does in verse 7 is he gives you the key to the whole book. Right here from the outset, God wants you to know where he's going in this story. He wants you to know where he's going with this thing. He wants you to know what his focus is. Right from the get-go, what he does in verse 7 is he puts in your hands the key that you're going to need to unlock the understanding to the entire rest of this book. And that key, that focus, the theme of the entire book is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 begins, Behold, He cometh. What God's trying to to, to do here is he's, He's beginning to zero in on what He wants us to be zeroed in on. And you see, if you miss it, if you miss... What he's dropping right here at the beginning of this story, and you'll miss the whole point of why this book is even sitting, where it's sitting in your Bible. You missed this point. And the book of Revelation, quite honestly, will be as confusing for you as it's been for most of the people of God through the centuries. They miss God's focus in this thing. You miss his focus, and you'll miss what God's trying to get you to see in the book of Revelation. Because there's something very definite, something very specific that God is trying to make sure that we see in this book. This book is the book of the throne. This book is is the book that is all about the the king and and his rule. You know, something interesting is that when you begin to, to look through the pages of Scripture at the first coming of Jesus Christ, though Herod himself acknowledged the fact that this Jesus was born king of the Jews. One of the things that you notice is through his whole entire life on this planet, not one time did he ever sit on a throne. He, he, was, he went from being born in a stable to what it says during his earthly ministry. Do you remember this? The Son of Man hath not place to lay his head. And ultimately, he finally found a resting place when they nailed him to a cross. But in this book, in the book of Revelation, where God reveals to us who Jesus Christ 
really is. The, the glorious person where God just takes the veil and He reveals Him to us. You know what? The word throne is found 40 times in this book alone because that's where God has been moving through the whole book of Revelation. And I'm referring to the Bible there. That's where God is moving through this whole thing to put His Son on a throne to rule over a kingdom. The word king, kingdom, or some form of that word is found in the book of Revelation at least 25 times. The word rule and power and authority, 37 times. The whole book is trying to reveal Jesus Christ as the, the sovereign of the universe, enthroned as the king over the kingdom of heaven. And if somehow you came through the first 65 books of your Bible, and there are a lot of people that do this. But if somehow you could have made it through the first 65 books of the Bible and you missed the theme of what God has been moving toward for the entire 6,000 years of human history, God comes to this last book of the Bible, the book that completes His perfect revelation to man. And in the seventh verse of this book that completes the perfect revelation of God to man, God strategically places for us the event that this book is really all about. The, the event that he takes in the book of Revelation, he takes 14 out of the 22 chapters of this book to come at that thing from every conceivable angle just to make sure that there is no possible way that we miss it. Just to, to see how this book lays out, he takes two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, to cover 2,000 years of time, 2,000 years of church history. He takes another two chapters in chapters 4 and 5 to show you what's taking place in heaven during that seven-year period uh, after the church is raptured out and just prior to the second coming of Christ. You, you skip for just a little bit. We'll come back. But you go over. He takes one chapter in chapter 20 to bring you through the thousand years of the millennium. In chapter 21, he takes a chapter to show you the, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And then he takes one final chapter in chapter 22 to show you eternity. But in the midst of all of that on either side, what he does is he takes 14 chapters right in the heart of the book, chapters 6 through 19. And what he does in these chapters is he lays out for us in specific detail the second coming of Jesus Christ to this planet. And this is the event that we went into last week. The fact that, uh, that Jesus Christ is coming to, the, to this planet and what he does in the book of Revelation is he wants to make sure that you understand this is what God has been moving toward. And so in those chapters, what he does is he brings you four times through the tribulation period so that he can show you four accounts of the second coming of Christ because the tribulation period culminates with the second coming of Christ. Now, I, I recognize every time that we come to this gathering of, of people that there's a lot of people that are coming for the first time and you don't know a lot of the things that the Bible talks about. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I do want you to be able to grab a hold of what we're really talking about here. The next event that we as God's people are looking for that has been disclosed to us through this book is that Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds and there is a trumpet that is going to sound and all of the people that are on this planet right now who know Jesus Christ, they will be what is called raptured. That is, they will immediately vanish off the face of this earth. That event will move us into what the Bible calls the tribulation period, a period of seven years where judgment, the judgment of sin, comes upon this planet. And that event, the tribulation period, that seven-year period, culminates with the second coming of Jesus Christ to this planet. But what he does in the book of Revelation is he brings you four times through the second coming, and he does that because he wants to make sure that you understand that this is the theme of this entire book. And after God has brought John four times through this thing, and, and John has been able to see what this event is actually going to mean for Jesus Christ, and he has been able to see what this event means 
to God the Father. You just got to love the way that he ends the book. You know, without looking, most of you, right? What does he say? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, so watch what God does in this book. The way he lays this, lays this thing out, he begins the book in verse 7, right here in chapter 1. He begins the book with the second coming of Christ. The heart of the book, chapters 6 through 19, all it is is four accounts of the second coming of Christ. And just so that we, by the time we get through the few things that he says are going to take place after the second coming of Christ, just so that we will end this book and have our focus on what God wants us to be focused in on, the very last words of this book, God brings us to that. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, the second coming of Christ. Now, last week what we did is I tried to just back up just a little bit so that we all understand the real significance of the theme of the book of Revelation being the second coming of Christ. You've got to see that, or as I said, you'll, you'll lose your shirt. You'll lose your way in trying to make your way through this and understand all of what's really taking place here. But I could say that same thing, and we did say it uh, last week from a lot of different angles. We talked about the fact that you can never really understand not just the book of Revelation, but the whole of God's revelation to man, what we call the Bible. You cannot understand this thing, really, without understanding the fact that this thing of the second coming of Christ what the Bible refers to over and over and over again as the day of the Lord, it is the theme of this entire book. And I want to, I want to just take a, just a second to, to show you that in, in the book of Genesis. So if you turn back there for just a second. <clears throat> the book of Genesis in chapter 1, of course, God is bringing you through the creative week. He brings you through six of those days in chapter 1. And each day, he says, in the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning the second, evening and morning the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Okay? That's all of chapter 1. Okay? And then we come to chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And we have noted in time past that basically if you look at the work that God has been doing is he would speak things into existence. And it doesn't take a whole lot of labor for God to speak. Okay? But he's going to rest on that seventh day and it says in verse 3, very, very significant. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now, those of us that have been around for a little while, and we understand that that word sanctified means set apart. Set apart. Now, now watch what God did. He blessed the seventh day. And he took that day and he set it apart he set it apart unto himself you know what God was saying right here at the very beginning of the Bible the seventh day is mine I'm taking the seventh day I'm going to bless that seventh day that seventh day is mine this day is the day of the Lord Okay, now, when you see that God set that day apart for himself right there, and that it is his day, once that really crystallizes in your mind, and man, it needs to. You need to make sure you're tracking right now, because what God's showing you here is the theme of this whole book. You see, the evening and the morning, they were literal 24-hour days that were taking place here, seven of them. Evening and morning, evening and morning. But you go over to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. You don't need to do it. Just listen. What, what God tells you is, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Okay, what's that? Beloved, don't miss this one. That a day 
with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. And what you begin to do is you begin to put that into the equation that he just gave you here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, where he says, this day is mine. And what you find is God hallows that seventh day all the way through the Old Testament. But what you find out in Revelation chapter 20 is there is coming a thousand-year period of rest on this planet that begins with Jesus Christ coming back to this planet. Now, there is a 24-hour period that is in Scripture, the day of the Lord. A 24-hour period that is going to be that day when Jesus Christ bodily, physically comes back to this planet. But understand that biblically that this day also is as a thousand years. It is a thousand year period that is spelled out for you in Revelation chapter 20. And all the way through the whole Bible, God keeps saying, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. It is the theme of the entire Bible. And so you'll see that in even more detail than we did last week. But let's get back to our text now in Revelation chapter 1. And let me show you why this is such a a great day to God. Now keep in mind that we're not going to fully understand its greatness and the full magnitude of this thing until we've allowed God to take us four times through it in in this book. And then, of course, as we've mentioned, that's what He does. He brings us through it four times, four different ways to make sure that we've got it. But he takes us pretty far down the road just through what he gives us in in, in verse 7. I mean, God is a master teacher, guys. He he lays this book out in an unbelievable fashion to show you in just a succinct way what he wants you to know. And, I I mean, you you just can't improve on God's outline. So what we're going to do this morning, we're just going to walk through verse 7 and let God show you what it is about this day that is so great. And he gives us four specific things. What I'm calling on your outline, four great characteristics of God's great day. And here's the first one. It will be glorious. Man, if you you don't know why this is so great to God, this is going to be so incredibly glorious. That's what makes it so great. Verse 7 says, Behold, He cometh, And now watch this. With clouds. He cometh with clouds. You say, well, what's so glorious about that? Well, I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But first of all, I, I want you to see that it must be pretty important for us to know about Him coming with clouds because God is pretty intent in this Bible on showing you that when He comes again, it is going to be with clouds. Okay, so we, we've got to we've got to look at that, and we've got to just step back from it and begin to just say, so what's he up to? What's up with that? It's something that you see repeatedly in the New Testament. In, in Matthew chapter twenty-four, Jesus was sitting, and, and catch this: in Matthew twenty-four, Jesus is sitting in the exact location where his feet will first set foot on this earth. He is at that very place when he comes at his second coming. He is sitting right there, and ironically enough, as he takes his seat, his disciples just happen to ask him about the signs that would precede his his second coming. And in the midst of teaching them, he says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is brought before Caiaphas, the the high priest, and and Caiaphas is is asking him whether or not he's the Messiah. And he says in Matthew 26, verse 64, it says, Jesus saith unto him, that's this Caiaphas, thou hast said. Okay, Caiaphas says, so so what's up? Are you you the one we're looking for or not? Are you the Messiah or or, or not? Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. In other words, hey, you don't need me to say this. You know it. You, You know who I am. I mean, I've already made that abundantly clear. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and here it comes again, and coming in the 
clouds of heaven. So on two separate occasions now, Jesus made a very distinct point about the fact that the next time he comes, he's coming with clouds. But not only did Jesus emphasize it. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has already died, been buried, risen from the dead. And he was he was speaking to his disciples, his, his parting words to them. And it says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, and watch this, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. How had they just seen him go into heaven? They saw it. They saw him leave on a cloud. But not only does the Lord emphasize it in the New Testament through the ministry of Jesus, the angels, the Old Testament is also full of it. I mean, I mean, you go back to the Psalms and you find out that the psalmist was singing songs about the second coming of Christ. In Psalm 104, in verse 3, he sang, He maketh the clouds his chariot. In Psalm 97, in verse 2, he sang, Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. So the psalmist is, is singing about the second coming. As he's singing about the second coming, he cannot miss the fact that that second coming has to do with clouds. And as you watch how God's holy prophets have prophesied about this event through the centuries, we saw last week in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 where God says that every one of His holy prophets since the world began have been preaching about this event that we're talking about, the second coming of Christ. And when you begin to look at what these guys prophesied concerning that event, it's amazing. Isaiah talked about the very same point. In Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1, Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord writeth on a upon a swift cloud. Jeremiah talked about it. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 13, he said, Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. Ezekiel talked about the second coming in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4, and he said, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud. Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, saying, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 2, Joel called it a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. And, and I think you get the point. I mean, there's something that God is wanting us to, to take note of about the fact that when Christ comes to this planet again, He is coming with clouds. I mean, He's emphasized it over and over. And, and look at verse 7 of Revelation 1 again. You know what's interesting to me? And, and this is kind of what set me off on this thing, to, to begin to just go through and try to find out what's up with these clouds, is when you look at verse 7, we'd understand just perfectly if the phrase with clouds wasn't even there. I mean, look at it. Wouldn't you understand verse 7 if it just said, Behold, he cometh, and every eye shall see him. Right? You'd understand that. But it is there. Okay? And, and so we're forced. We're, we've got to face this thing. And God doesn't, we know, he doesn't just indiscriminately throw words around. Evidently, there, there's something he's trying to draw our attention to. Evidently, we can't really understand His coming as perfectly as He wants us to without letting us know that that thing is going to be with clouds. And so you just begin to back off from this thing to start watching how God has used clouds in the Bible and in His dealings with men. And what you find is that God has already set a pretty major precedence when it comes to this thing of clouds. 
there, there's something that, that, that God is, is, is trying to, to get us to, to see here. There's a message he's, he's wanting to, uh, us to get. When you back off from the thing, it's not real difficult to see what that thing is. Here it is. I'll give it to you, and then I'll show it to you. The clouds are the clothing of His glory. The clouds are the clothing of His glory. And you, oh, folks, don't, don't miss this now. E- Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 4 says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, Solomon had just completed the, the building of the, the temple and, and the way in the context where the priests go in and they place the Ark of the Covenant in the, the Holy of Holies. And all at once, the, the Levites just bust out in a, in a song and the, the musicians are playing. And it says in Second Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, here it is, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And do you remember how that in eternity past, Lucifer coveted the glory that was God's alone. And you remember in his heart he spoke the five I wills. And do you remember what he said in Isaiah 14 and verse 14? I will ascend above the heights of the what? The clouds. Again, I, I mean, it's just as plain as the nose on your face once you just begin to see how God uses this thing. The clouds are the clothing of his glory. And that's why, according to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, when God called the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, He marched before them all the way through the desert. And as He did that, you know what He did? He wrapped Himself in a cloud. And according to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2, when Israel pitched the the tabernacle in the wilderness, and, and of course the tabernacle, as many of you have already studied, the tabernacle was where God said that, that He would meet with them. And in that tabernacle, God enthroned Himself, how? Draped with a cloud upon the mercy seat. As we saw just a minute ago in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, after His death, burial, and resurrection, and after giving His disciples their, their final commissioning, He stepped from off of the Mount of Olives and climbed the sky to glory once again, wrapped in a cloud. And you see, once you begin to see this biblical precedence that has been set for all of these ways that the glory of God has manifested itself in times past in glory, I mean, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth, folks, once you've seen it biblically, how, how else could you expect Him to come? But with clouds, He is going to come in that day arrayed in the splendor and majesty and glory of clouds because the clouds are the clothing of His glory. And glory is what the second coming is all about. It is the priority of the second coming. Glory. That's God's number one supreme, overarching priority for His Son that when He comes to this planet the second time, that He comes and He is glorified. When He came to this earth the first time, Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says that He came in humility. It says that He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. 
He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Through our sin, folks, we, we smote His back. We plucked out His beard. We beat Him. We spat in His face. And ultimately, you know what we did? We killed Him. But when He comes the second time, He comes in glory. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels. In Matthew 19 and verse 28, He said, In the regeneration, the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory. In Matthew 24, verse 30, He said that at His second coming, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In Matthew 25, verse 31, He said the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. Then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And folks, that is the day that God is anxiously awaiting And that is the day, quite honestly, that all of God's children should also be anxiously awaiting the day that He returns different than it was that first time. I love to sing that song we sang last Sunday night about when He comes again in Revelation 19. This time, no crown of thorns. This time, no cross of pain. He comes revealed, the song says, in glory now. That's what that event is all about. He comes in glory the day that He comes with clouds. But John lets us know a second thing about this great day and another great characteristic here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And that is, this event will transcend geographic limitations. Geographic limitations. Look at verse 7 again. John says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. You know, when Jesus made his entrance to this earth the first time in that physical, earthly body of flesh that veiled his glory, you know, when you just step back and you begin to watch how that whole thing came down, and you begin to look at the eyes that actually beheld His glory when He came the first time. In the city of Bethlehem, I mean, have you ever thought about the fact how few there actually were? I mean, I I don't know exactly what the population was in Bethlehem at that time, but I can tell you this, that out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had made their way to Bethlehem at the entrance of the King of Kings to this planet, that all told, there would be just probably less than 20 actual eyes that beheld the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, you had Mary with two eyes and Joseph with two eyes. You had a handful of shepherds. And I mean, the combined total out of all of the population, I mean, not to mention the population of the entire world at that time. And out of all of that, In that one geographic location, there wasn't a handful of people or a a score of eyes that actually beheld that. And you know what? For 30 years of his life, what we know about the the life of Christ, he lived in obscurity. Basically, only his earthly parents knew the glory that was behind that robe of flesh. The the Scripture even talks about how that, that even his brothers and sisters didn't actually realize who their brother really was. But then after 30 years, it was, it was time for God to reveal who He really was. And so Jesus was baptized there of John at the Jordan River. And you remember what happened. The Holy Spirit came down visually in the form of a, a dove to affirm this is the Messiah. This is God. God the Father spoke audibly with, with His voice from heaven to affirm it as well. And for the next three and a half years, what Jesus did with his life is he fulfilled all 360 prophecies concerning that period of time that the Old Testament had specifically laid out for his first coming. And yet, have you ever really stopped to think about the fact that of all of the people that Jesus touched in his lifetime, all of the people that were healed, all of the people who listened to him 
to, to him preach, do you realize how few there really were that really saw the glory that was his? You remember what happened? He, he, he told his followers to wait for the endowment of power in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. And how many were actually there? The Bible says there were 120. Now, are we to assume from that that out of all of his entire earthly ministry, that the only ones who had ever really seen his glory were those that had gathered 120? And, and if you begin to just start thinking about how all of the people in the last 1960 years or so since his death, and you begin to just look at all of the humanity that has lived and how many of those people who have been on this planet in, in, in again, that last 1960 or something years, how many of those people that have actually lived really saw through the pages of this book as he has been proclaimed now for centuries and centuries, just, I mean, you begin to think about the, the actual number of people who have actually beheld the glory of the Lord, and it is staggeringly few. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 14, Jesus said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now in John chapter 1, in verse 1, God says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so that nobody would have any question about who that is, John 1.14, the very same chapter says, and the Word, okay, now we've already just, we just saw in verse 1, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But again, that we, that John is talking about there, that have actually beheld His glory. Folks, compared to the amount of people who have lived on this planet, that, that is so very few. So very few who have ever really actually seen Jesus Christ for who He really is. And, and I mean, you just start thinking about the time that we're living in. I mean, you know, we're living in a time, folks, where we are seeing this book fulfilled right before our very eyes. I mean, it's just as plain as it can possibly be that this book is a reality because it's, things are taking place right now that were prophesied thousands of years ago, and yet even in the midst of fulfilled prophecy where, I mean, you, you, you couldn't miss it if you tried. And yet, folks, out of the almost 6 billion people who are on this planet today, how many do you think really have understood and have actually seen through the eyes of faith the glory of the Lord. But John lets us know in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 that the second coming of Christ is going to change all of that. Because when He comes again, the eye of every single person on this planet will see Him because this time He is coming without the veil of His flesh. He is coming with the clouds, John said, and we've just shown you those clouds are the clothing of His glory. He is coming in glory next time, and when He comes to this planet, every person will see Him as He really is this time. They will see Him in all of His glory. But let me tell you something. If you wait, if you wait to see His glory then. And some of you right now, you're saying, okay, yeah, that's cool. You know, I've never received Christ, and you know, I'm not too bothered about that because that's cool. If He's coming again, and everybody is going to behold Him, and every eye is going to see Him in glory, well, man, that's just real great. I'll just live my life the way that I want to right now, and, and I'll take care of that business when He comes again. Listen, if you wait till this event that He's talking about here in verse 7, and when He comes with clouds, if that is the first time your eye beholds Him in His glory, let me tell you, that glory will annihilate you. It will 
annihilate you. And, and this is not just, you know, some hellfire and brimstone preacher up here who's trying to, you know, wig you out about something. I'm just giving you what the Scriptures teach because the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, it says that when Jesus, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, listen, He'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, watch this now, and from the glory of His power. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Every eye on that day, every eye shall see Him. You will see, look at the last part of verse 9 again, you will see the glory of His power. And listen, I know this sounds, again, it sounds like preacher talk, but you've got to understand something. Nuclear power is nothing compared to the glory of His power. I want you to listen very carefully to what it says in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14 and verse 12. It says that at the second coming, listen, their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes, which will at that time be beholding His glory as He comes in the clouds, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. Now, folks, listen. I, I realize that what we live in a day and age where the Bible says that people want to come to church and they want to, ha they want to be scratched where they itch. Paul talked about that in 2 uh, Timothy. He says the day's coming where people are going to want to have their ears tickled. And, and I realize right now with some of this stuff that we're talking about here, about the glory of His power when He comes in His second coming. Folks, listen. I, I understand this is not ear-tickling stuff. I understand that, you know, people will say, well, I, I, I want to come to church and, you know, I don't want to be beat down, man. I want to, I want to come to church and I want to get something that's going to help me through the week and I, I want something that's going to, you know, uplift me. Let, let me tell you, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to be uplifted. When that trumpet sounds and the Lord Jesus Christ blows that trumpet at the rapture of the church before all the tribulation prior to this event, you know what? I want you to be uplifted. And the only way that you can be uplifted that day is for you to know the reality of who Jesus Christ is and behold Him through the eyes of faith in all of His glory. And I realize that all of this stuff we're talking about, about your, your eyes melting right out of your head along with your tongue and the flesh being just zapped right off of your being, I realize that that's not a, a, a real warm fuzzy that you come to, you know, get, come to church and... Well, wasn't that a nice sermon that the, the preacher had today? I, I realize nobody's going out today with, with those kind of accolades. And you know what? I'm not concerned about that. I'd rather you have literally the... I can't go there. <laughs> I'd rather you be scared to death today and have your eyes opened to what is about to take place on this planet so that when that trumpet sounds, buddy, you can be out of here. Because, but you need to realize that glory of His power, man, it is so, so incredible. It, it is so destructive. And yet, that same glory of, of His power that on that day will annihilate every person, you, you just got to realize that what God wants, what He wants today is, now listen, what he wants is that the glory of his power to annihilate your sin be exercised in your life. That's what he wants to do. Today, the glorious power of Jesus Christ is available to you to cleanse you from your sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And you see, the blood is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that He wants to exercise in your life. In fact, you know, don't, don't go out of here today and say, well, you know, uh, God just wants to, to blow me out of the saddle. No, did you know that according to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, what, what that verse says is that the only reason that Jesus Christ has not already come back in glorious power is because He is long-suffering toward you. And He is not willing that you or any other person should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you'll come before Him today, repenting of your sin, confessing Him as Lord, then I promise you the glory of His power will be exercised in your life, and it will annihilate your sin. It will wash it away. It will dispel it. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. And some of you are saying, well, man, I'll tell you, I'd have no problem with this thing of repenting of my sin because, I, man, I know I've got a lot of it, and I know that I'm a sinner, but, man, I just... The, the whole deal of this living out that Christian life thing, I don't, I don't know for sure if I can do it. Listen, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11 says that if once that you have allowed Him to exercise... His glorious power to save you. It says that you can be strengthened with all might, listen, according to His glorious power. You know, re do you realize what happens when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Jesus Christ, in all of His glory, comes and takes up residence inside of you and gives you the power to do right now what you cannot do on your own. No, you can't live the Christian life. And so he says, listen, if you'll just, through the eyes of faith, see me for who I am and call upon my name, I'll come into you, and with my glorious power, I'll strengthen you for the task. But folks, one of these days real soon, every person, every person, regardless of geographic location, will see him in all of his glory. And then John shows us something else in verse 7. Not only will it be glorious, <clears throat> not only will it transcend geographic limitations, it will also transcend time limitations. Because verse 7 says that not only shall every eye see Him, but listen to this, and they also which pierced Him. Now, now check this out. The return of Christ is so significant to God that it will be witnessed by all men without regard to time and space. You see, every eye transcends geographic limitations. But do you realize they that pierced Him carries us back in time to the day of His crucifixion to those responsible for piercing His hands and His feet with those nails that hung Him to His cross, and those responsible for piercing His side with sword to ensure His death. You say, but wait, 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 wait. Now, those were people who died, again, that's 1960-something years ago. I mean, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Do you understand what God's talking about? Those people who pierced Him they will face Him again. This event, the second coming of Christ, is so significant, God says, you know what? Even the people who pierced Him, that ain't the last time that they have to look at Him. They're going to look at Him again. Have you ever noticed that little thing that Jesus said to... We looked at what He said to Caiaphas, the high priest, there at His crucifixion a little bit earlier. We'll go back to that verse in Matthew 26. In verse 64, Jesus said unto him, I say unto you, hereafter... Okay, now he's talking to Caiaphas now. Watch this. Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. You see, that's exactly what Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 is talking about. And he says, Caiaphas, hereafter you're going to see him coming with clouds. And we know now that that hereafter would be a period of almost 1970-something years. But you mark it down. Those responsible for looking right at Him and piercing Him are going to face Him again. But when they see Him this time, they won't see Him as some common criminal worthy to receive death. 
They'll see Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords in all of His glory. They'll see Him, as, as it says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, they'll see Him as one who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. They'll see Him again this time in all of His glory. But for them, it'll be too late. It's too late. You say, well, okay, now, who is it that is, was actually responsible for piercing him? Well, we know from John chapter 19, verse 34, that it was actually the Roman soldiers who actually carried out the crucifixion. I mean, if you want to bring it down to who was it that actually put the nails into his hands and his feet and the spear into his side, who was it that actually pierced him in that way, then obviously... It was the Roman soldiers. They're responsible for piercing him. And yet, really, it was actually the cowardice of Pilate that allowed the whole thing to happen in the first place. Pilate himself acknowledged in John chapter 19 and verse 10 that he had the power to release him. So, of course, he too must bear some of the responsibility for piercing him. But then it was the nation of Israel who actually called for his death. I mean, Pilate asked them which prisoner they wanted to release, and what would they say? We want Barabbas. And so Pilate asked them, well, what should I do with Jesus? And what did they say? Crucify him! Crucify him! So they too must accept the responsibility then for, for piercing him. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, prophesying the, the words of Christ concerning the nation of Israel at His second coming. It says, And they shall look upon Me whom they pierced. Speaking of the nation of Israel. So certainly, the nation of Israel is responsible. But, in the final analysis, the responsibility is not only upon the Roman soldiers and Pilate and the nation of Israel. Ultimately, it's upon you and me. Because do you realize what it was? Listen, do you realize what it actually was that nailed Jesus to that cross? It was our sin. That's what He was doing on this planet in the first place. Because you and I were sinners. It was your sin that pierced Him. It was my sin. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. If you want to really know who was responsible for piercing Him, don't look past anyone but yourself. And, and folks, listen, I promise you, if you can look at Him straight at Him today as He is seeking to reveal Himself to you through the pages of this book, and He says, now, now listen folks, He says that the way that people come to salvation is through the foolishness of preaching. Do you, do you understand what's going on in this room? Through this stupid little thing that this guy is up here doing as he keeps busting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. It's not just to fill time, uh, some time slot for a bunch of people on, on a Sunday morning. This is God's way of communicating Himself to you. It's through the pages of the book. And, and I'm telling you, if you can look straight at Him as He's seeking to reveal Himself to you through His book, the only way that He is going to do that and you can look on Him who you have pierced and yet refuse to allow Him to exercise that glorious, forgiving power to save you from your sin, then just recognize there will be, according to Revelation 1-7, there will be another day, just like there will be for Pilate, just like there will be for the Roman soldiers, just like there will be for the nation of Israel. There will be a day when you will look at Him upon whom you have pierced and you will see Him in all of His glory. But it will be too late at that point. And you need to recognize what's going on in this room today. The reason God brought you here is so that He could get you the message that He's been trying to get you. That Jesus Christ loved you enough to come to this earth to take your sin, to die for that. And He's trying to reveal that to you through the pages of His book. But listen, we've already seen what He said about those that don't obey 
His gospel as it's being revealed to them even now. Then there's a fourth thing. It will also transcend racial boundaries. Verse 7 says, And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Coming with clouds is, is the glory of it. Every eye transcends geographic limitations. They that pierced Him transcends time limitations. And all kindreds of the earth means that no race, no people is excluded. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the one great universal event that will focus all places, all times, all people, and all nations. Alfred Tennyson, we studied him in school, the great English poet from the last century that they called Lord Tennyson. Tennyson wrote, It is the one far-off divine event which the whole creation moves. And he's right, because Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Listen, all of creation is moving in anticipation toward that one event. There's only one thing about what Tennyson had to write about it that isn't true. And that is, it's no longer far off. I mean, it is... It is that far. I mean, it, it could be as close as seven years away from this very moment because, I mean, folks, as far as Scripture is concerned, there's nothing left that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ calls and blows that trumpet for the rapture of the church. And from that event, man, you got seven years of tribulation on this planet. But John says all kindreds, all people groups will be affected by this thing. The whole entire earth And how will they be affected? He says, all kindreds of the earth shall wail. Listen, every person who has ever lived on any part of this globe at any time in history, from every tribe and people and nation who lived their life without obeying His gospel, He says, they at that day, they not only will gasp, They won't just scream in horror. It says they will wail. Amos prophesying of this event in Amos chapter 5 and verse 16 said, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, get in the picture? This is Amos talking, he's saying. This is what the Lord says. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets, all kindreds everywhere on this planet, every person who has ever lived and every single one of them and that day will wail. In Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14, Zephaniah said, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. And watch now. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. We've got a planet full of men right now who are clamoring with all of their might to be a macho man. And they ain't going to cry. They ain't going to shed a tear. They don't need nothing. They don't need nobody. They are the cat's meow. All they need is their six-pack and their Marlboro buddy and their set, you know. I mean, macho. It's Jesus. That's for pansies and that's for people who, you know, need a crutch and all of this stuff. Stephanie says, oh, buddy, on that day, all the macho men of this planet are going to be out in the street crying like a stinking little baby to the top of their lungs. In, in, over in Second Thessalonians, Paul talked about that event and he said it's going to be like a, a woman giving birth to a baby. All those macho men are going to be out there in the street sounding like they're having a baby. You've, you've heard that, haven't you? I mean, what a blood-curdling scream. You know what? That's not even the half of it. The mighty men shall cry bitterly. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24 and verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all tribes of the earth mourn. 
Luke 23 and verse 30 says that people will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, cover us! Revelation 9, 6 says, And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him right here in the pages of this book? And you know what the answer to that question is? How shall we escape? You know what the answer is? You won't escape. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah said in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, How ye... You know what how means? Well! How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. But listen, as you're reading all of that and you are seeing just how absolutely horrendous this event is going to be, don't ever let out of your mind, not even for a second, that the reason that all of this is going to be taking place on this planet is because men's refusal to allow the blood of Jesus Christ that was offered for their sin to remove their sin out of their life. And because of their refusal to receive Him, that is what is going to be taking place. Don't ever get that out of your mind, that what God has done is everything that He could possibly do to let you know that He loved you. But if you can snub your nose, if you can spit in His face after that, He says, let me tell you something, you'll pay for it. There is coming a day when I'm coming and I'm going to settle the score with this thing. But man, don't, don't, man, don't ever for a second miss the reality of what this event is all about. John said in Revelation chapter 1 7, all kindreds of the earth shall wail. Not just the unsaved kindreds of the earth, all kindreds. Saved people will also wail on that day. You know, you know that? But it will be a different kind of wailing. You remember what we saw just a minute ago in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 where it talked about how that at His second coming He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And that, of course, is what's going to be taking place with the unsaved but now watch the next verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. It goes on to describe the, the event this way. When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. You know what? In that day, you won't be able to distinguish the shouts and cries of anguish and horror of the unsaved from the shouts and cries of of jubilation and rejoicing from the saved because this is the day that every true child of God has been anticipating and waiting for and longing for. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul talked about looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, he talked about, at the end of the verse, those who love His appearing. And listen, when He finally comes, and the Lord Jesus Christ, after all of the last 6,000 years of Him being rejected and blasphemed and maligned and, and, and spat upon and crucified, and after all of this time, when we finally be, are able to see Him face to face, in all of His glory, and we see every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. Let me tell you something, folks. We're going to wail with jubilation and exaltation when we're finally able to see the glory of His person. And notice why. What verse 7 said, why all the kindreds of the earth will wail. It says, because of Him. Because of Him. Oh my goodness. We just don't have any clue, do we, about the glory of His person. And man, when unsaved people see the glory of His person in that day, it will be horrifying 
and save people, see the glory of His person in that day, it will be the greatest day for us in all of the world. And it will be for God the greatest day in all of the world. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, I, I now, now listen, I recognize, I recognize what you've heard today is really strong. And I realize probably the thing that brought you to this church today was not because you wanted somebody to tell you about the absolute destruction that you're heading toward. But now listen, don't miss, don't miss what is real. What is real is that today God stands as the God who gave His only begotten Son because He loves you. And He did that willingly because He wants to take your sin, because He wants to have a relationship with you. He's given us this book so that you could understand He is wanting to have that kind of relationship with you. But the fact remains, if you spit in His face over what He has done to love you, there is another side. And it's something that we all need to be very cautiously anticipating. Because this is coming. And it's coming real soon. And, and so it's not one of those things where we just walk out of here today and say, well, yeah, yeah, well, one of these days I, I might just... Fa-. Listen, if God has been speaking to your heart this morning about receiving Christ, if, if as I've been... Do you know how many scriptures we hit today? And as that's been taking place, as you've been hearing the scripture, if God has been taking that scripture to your heart, revealing to you your need to receive Jesus Christ... Do it today. Through the eyes of faith, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin so that you can see Him in His glory and see Him exercise that glorious power against your sin today before that glorious power is exercised against you as a sinner. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I want to ask you now that you would take these truths and I, I pray you take them to the hearts of, of people in this room really to, to all of us there's a lot of saved people in this room and we desperately need you to help us get fixed in our minds what is about to take place on this planet so we can get our lives prioritized because we find ourselves getting ourselves out of whack a whole lot getting misdirected and spending time on a lot of things that we've got no business spending time doing. So Lord, help us to recognize the glory of that great day. And may we live our lives in anticipation for that event. But oh Lord, our our hearts are, are turned in light of what you've shown us today about coming in in clouds of glory and every eye at all periods of time seeing even those that pierced Him, which is all of us. Oh God, I, I pray that people that are in this room today that don't know You as Savior, that they will, while they have the chance today for You to wash them with the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that they would Call upon Your name today so that You may exercise that glorious power in their life. I pray that they would be saved today for Your glory's sake.